Lord, you are a great God, and we desire to know you more, to see your glory. We desire to understand your will for our lives. We desire to depend on your grace and live lives that are holy and bring honor to you. Lord, we need your help to understand your word, and we need your help to apply it. We pray that your spirit would be with us this morning. Energize us. Change us. Help us to see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are new with us, we've been working through the book of Genesis over the last several months. And through the book of Genesis, we've seen a record many times of human failure. It starts in Genesis chapter 3 as Adam and Eve do the one thing God had commanded them not to do, which is to eat from the tree the knowledge of good and evil. We've seen many failures since then. Cain killed Abel, the whole earth became so wicked that God had to send a flood. Even, even the patriarchs themselves, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are men who failed. But although Genesis records many human failures, it also offers us a remarkable example of integrity in the life of Joseph. Joseph is a man who we met uh, two weeks ago, and he's a man who we will see this week faced great temptation, but he refused Unlike Adam in the garden, he remained faithful. And his display of righteousness was actually crucial to the furtherance of God's plan. God had made a promise that he would provide blessing and redemption for his people. And all those hopes, not just for the nation Israel, but for the world, hinged upon this one family. And this one family's survival hinged upon what would happen to Joseph. All sorts of bad stuff happened to Joseph. And you might think that that God was maybe not keeping his promise But God actually used all of these events to further his plan. And the integrity of Joseph was key to the development of this plan. Not only that, but the righteousness of Joseph in Genesis 39 graciously points us forward to the one whose perfect righteousness would one day secure our salvation. However, we'll see in chapter 39 here that Joseph's integrity will cost him. It's going to cost him quite a bit. In fact, at first, it seems as if injustice will prevail. You look around at our world, we see a lot of injustice, don't we? Bad things happen to people who don't seem to deserve it. Things happen that aren't fair. Things happen that aren't right. But in God's providence, in his sovereign control over all of these things, Joseph's winding path of destiny will ultimately lead to the deliverance of God's covenant people. It'll lead to the preservation of the chosen family, which means the preservation of hope for all the families of the earth, those whom God had promised to bless. The theme of Joseph's story is that God's providence ensures the fulfillment of God's promises. We see the the words of Paul in Romans 8, that God works all things together for good. We see that fleshed out in real time in the life of Joseph. In the big picture, this means that the promise that God gave Abraham, the promise that he would bless all the families of the earth through the great nation that would come from him, it means that God was still bringing that to pass, even through these crazy circumstances that Joseph faced. That's kind of the big picture. In the immediate context, it means the exaltation of Joseph to a position of authority and a position of honor, even though he was the second to youngest out of 12 sons. You remember two chapters ago, we saw that Joseph had received two divine dreams. They didn't have any scriptures in those days. God revealed himself to his people in other ways. 
And Joseph had these two dreams. The first was that he and his brothers were in the field. They were binding up sheaves. They were harvesting wheat. And the ten sheaves of his older brothers, they gathered around and bowed down to his sheaf. Then he had a second dream that the sun and the moon and 11 stars all bowed down to him. The implication is clear, that Joseph was destined for prominence, that he would rule over his family, even though he was one of the youngest. Now his brothers already hated Joseph because he was the favorite, and they couldn't stand him. But after this, they could tolerate him no longer. They decided to put a stop to his dreams. Initially, they planned to kill him, But they ended up selling him to some traders that were passing by. And Joseph, though God had revealed to him that he was destined for greatness, he ends up being a slave in a foreign land. He's taken to Egypt, far from home, far from the chosen family, far from the promised land. But as time goes on, it eventually becomes clear that each step of this surprising journey is actually part of God's plan to bring his promises to fulfillment even when the twists and turns seem to take him in the opposite direction. And that's good news for people like us who know what God has promised us. But I don't know about you, but sometimes it feels as if what happens to us in life seems to be taking us in the opposite direction. Chapter 39 tells us about Joseph's experience as a slave in the house of Potiphar. Potiphar was a high-ranking official in the administration of Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, Joseph's rise to prominence would happen there in his house, but also his fall from grace. He's going to be falsely accused and sent to prison. In this story, we really see two principles that emerge. There's two important lessons that we take away from this likely familiar story to many of you. Here's the first. The theological principle is this, that God's presence and providence is active, even in the midst of adversity. Although Joseph is far from home, God is with him. And although Joseph seems to be a victim many times, God is at work, even in the midst of adversity. But there's a practical principle as well, and that's this. That's the importance of integrity. The importance of integrity, even in the midst of overwhelming temptation. We'll see both of those truths fleshed out in this story. We see in verses 1 through 6 that God is with Joseph in his slavery. Look with me in verse 1. Kind of catching us back up to speed after a detour last week telling us about his brother Judah. It says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Notice verse 2 what it says. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. And we'll stop right there. Now, it would have been easy, wouldn't it, for Joseph to feel abandoned by God. And how would you feel if your siblings beat you up, threw you in a pit, and then sold you as a slave, and then lied to your dad and said that you'd been killed by wild animals? Would you feel like God was on your side? 
Would you feel that God was with you? The temptation is to feel forgotten, isn't it? God, where are you? Where are you, God? When hard things happen to us, we start to wonder if God has abandoned us. It would have been easy for Joseph to assume that his experience meant God had forgotten him, that those promises, those dreams that he had, it must have been maybe some bad pizza he had the night before. But Moses tells us that the opposite is actually true, that God was with him, even in the midst of his adversity. And the result of God's presence was success in his new role, favor with his master, and promotion in his master's household. He is in the house instead of in the field. And he's, he's promoted to be the chief project manager, basically, over all of Potiphar's business. Potiphar trusted him with everything. God's presence is a covenant blessing that has carried his family through remarkable circumstances already. Remember the promise to Isaac in Genesis 26? He said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you. And multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. God had made the same promise to Joseph's father, Jacob, in chapter 28. He said, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God had been with Abraham. He had been with Isaac. He had been with Jacob. And now God is with Joseph as well. And just as the foreign ruler Abimelech had recognized that God was with Abraham back in chapter 21 and recognized that God was with Isaac in chapter 26, Potiphar here recognizes, he sees, wow, God is with Joseph. And he sees that everything Joseph touches turns to gold. He's successful in whatever he does, and Potiphar's no dummy. He promotes him. And just as Laban was blessed because of Jacob's service in his house, we saw that in chapter 30, so also Potiphar is blessed by God because of Joseph's work in his house. Remember back in chapter 12 what God had promised Abraham? He said, I will bless you, and he says, I will bless those who bless you. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We see that promise already coming to pass, being fulfilled in an initial sense that Potiphar, this Gentile man, was blessed because he treated Joseph well and that he was blessed through God's blessing of Joseph. This is how God works. He's already being faithful to keep that promise. The initial fulfillment is already evident. Now, things seem to be improving for Joseph Yes, he had been betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery, but it sure looks like he landed on his feet, that God is with him, and that he's now the highest ranking and most trusted employee of a very important member of Egyptian society, someone who had direct personal connections to the Pharaoh himself. But with his new prominence will come a test. We see that God's been faithful to Joseph, but the question is, will Joseph be faithful to God? Well, the answer is yes, and the bulk of this chapter deals with this test of Joseph. And we'll see in verse 6 through 18 that Joseph honors God by his integrity. We see that trouble is looming on the horizon. At the end of verse 6, it says, now, it's kind of introducing a key element of the plot here. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. 
See, Potiphar's not the only one who's noticed Joseph. He catches the eye of Potiphar's wife. We've seen that Joseph is industrious, he's a hard worker, he's trusted, he's successful, but that's not all. We find out he's also inherited the good looks of his mother. He is, according to scripture, handsome in form and appearance. He's young, he's well put together, and he's a pretty good-looking guy. He's a sharp-looking young man. And this leads to an initial temptation that Joseph has to face. She sees him. She propositions him, lie with me. One day she approaches Joseph, this foreign slave, and she's likely used to getting her way. I mean, she's the lady of the house. I mean, she has authority over all that are in her house. So she assumed this Hebrew slave would do her bidding. But little does she know that Joseph has a higher allegiance, a higher allegiance. He's already shown himself to be a faithful employee, shown himself to be a successful business manager. And now in the moment of temptation, Joseph proves himself to be a man of integrity. He refuses her advances. Verse 8, it says, but he refused. He refused. Why? Why did he refuse? Nobody else was around. Nobody was going to know. Maybe he deserves a break after all the bad breaks he's caught, right? Why should he refuse? We would do well to learn from his reasoning. I want you to look at the holy logic of Joseph as he responds to this temptation. He refuses, verse 8, and says to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his Wife, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? I want you to consider Joseph's response this morning. He gives three reasons why he must not and cannot do as she says. First of all, in verse 8, he says, This would violate his master's trust. Potiphar thought that Joseph was the kind of man that he could trust with everything. And to commit such a sin would be a personal betrayal of his master. Joseph says, I can't do that. I can't betray my master's trust. Secondly, he says, this would not just violate my master's trust. It would violate my master's marriage. In verse 9, Joseph had access to everything in the house, but he didn't have access to her body. That was a right and privilege reserved only for her husband. And to commit such a sin would be adultery. And Joseph knew that he must not violate that marriage covenant. See, Joseph is no dummy. He's wise, and he knows that the vengeance of a husband is great. Later, the King Solomon, David's son, would write in Proverbs chapter 6, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor And his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Although Solomon had not yet written these words. I mean, this would be hundreds of years later. Guys, wisdom is timeless. And Joseph already knows this truth. He knew that what she proposed would violate the marriage covenant and was therefore foolish and reckless And would bring destruction upon himself, and he must not violate his master's 
marriage. But third, and most importantly, we see in verse 9, most importantly, he knew that this would violate the righteous demands of a holy God. Look what he says in verse 9. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Temptation always offers something and tries to spin it as something good, something desirable, something that will bring pleasure and happiness and joy. But Joseph cuts right through all of that and he calls it what it is. How can I do this great wickedness and sin not just against you, not just against my own body, not just against my master. How can I sin against God? Because that's exactly what you're asking me to do. This is the holy foundation of Joseph's integrity. It was the fear of God. See, for some people, the first two reasons that he shared would actually be reasons to do what she offered. My master trusts me. I have authority over everything. That means I could probably get away with this. He hasn't given me access to, to, to you, his wife, but we've already seen in Genesis, what is it that we so often want? We want the one thing we can't have, right? You can eat from any tree in the garden except this one thing. For some people, that actually makes this temptation stronger. What is it that caused both of those reasons to actually be reasons for Joseph to refuse? It's this foundation, it's this foundation of the fear of God. This is the holy foundation of his integrity. This is the source of his wisdom. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. People who don't fear God are foolish. But the fear of God produces wisdom in Joseph, wisdom to see through this for what it was. This is what cleared his thinking to see through her offer and recognize it for what it was. And what was it? It was a spiritual death trap baited with the promise of pleasure. And he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Proverbs 7, 21 warns us against those that would, would invite us into an adulterous act. It says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. You have to wonder if Solomon is thinking about Potiphar's wife as he writes this. All at once, tragically in this story, Solomon says, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low. And all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Joseph sees this temptation for what it is, and he refuses. And friends, we need to talk about this for a minute because we live in a day and age where immorality, it pervades everything, everything around us. It's in the world's music it's on our television screens. It's in the movies. It's in commercials. It's on billboards and magazines. It's only ever a click away on the devices that we have in our offices and in our homes and that we carry with us in our pockets. And more than that, it's in our flesh. As fallen people, we have distorted desires for that which God says is harmful, that which God says dishonors him and degrades our own souls and bodies. 
too many in the church today are crippled by sexual sin. And there's a lot we can learn this morning from Joseph. How do we fight against temptation? What was the secret to Joseph's success? Did Joseph have a really good accountability partner? No. Had Joseph read the latest Christian book that gave the best practices? No. Did Joseph have a great church family around him to encourage him and help him? No, he was all alone. But he had one thing. He had the fear of God. Friends, it all starts in the heart. It all starts in the heart. Imagine this. If Joseph had made a habit, think with me for a minute. If Joseph had made a habit throughout his life of letting his mind wander, if he had secretly allowed his heart to be ruled by lustful desires, fantasy, do you think that at this moment he would have suddenly found the strength and the conviction to refuse this temptation? Do you think that out of nowhere he would have just decided to reject her flattery and, and refuse this opportunity to indulge his flesh? No, <laughs> that's not how it works. You see, this is not the first time. This is not the first time that Joseph had ever considered the moral and ethical implications of a relationship with a holy God. He knew about God's purpose in creation, that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And he had thought about that. It had shaped his thinking, and it had caused him to refuse, saying, no, you are his wife, not mine, and therefore I cannot do this. He knew God's command to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless, God had told his great-grandfather. He knew what God expected of him, and he knew he could not do such a thing. He knew that the God who was with him was the maker of heaven and earth, the God who warned Adam and Eve that death would follow disobedience. He'd considered this truth. He knew that God was the one who had sought Cain out after his sin because Abel's blood was crying out to him from the ground. He knew that God was a God of justice. He knew that his God was the God who destroyed the world with a flood because of their sin. That his God was the God who scattered the nations from Babel because of their rebellion. He knew that his God was the God who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. The God who turned Lot's wife to a pillar of salt because of the lustful longings in her heart for the things of the world. Joseph knew that if he were to indulge in sin that Yahweh would see even though they were alone in the house, that God would know and that Joseph would forfeit the blessing of his holy presence and would incur judgment on himself. His view of God, his fear of God is what gave him a moral backbone in that moment. And friends, the reason that sometimes we stumble and fall in this area is because we simply haven't considered. Or in that moment, we have amnesia. <laughs> Theological amnesia, we've forgotten who our God is because that is the source of Joseph's backbone in this moment. He has no accountability partner. He has no support from his church. No one would have known, but he knew that God saw and that God knew, and that was enough to protect him from this sin. One of my basketball coaches used to say that when the opportunity comes, it's too late to prepare, and that's true in sports. It's true in school. You know, If you just show up for your test and you've never studied, you're going to fail. It's true in all areas of life, and it's true in the area, in the arena of temptation. The fear of God that you and I need, the, the wisdom-shaped view of the world that we need, it has to be developed before you face these kinds of temptations. 
Because when the moment arises, it's too late. What you are and who you are will be revealed and exposed in that moment. At that point, your faith is not being fortified. It's not being strengthened. It's being tested. Joseph's faith is tested. And he shows himself to be a man of integrity. And the source of that strength is his view of God. He fears the Lord. Well, did she take no for an answer? I mean, think about this. Joseph could have just said no and walked away. He actually shares with her his rationale, perhaps hoping that what he said would actually convince her. But she doesn't take no for an answer. Look in verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. The fact that he had said no actually makes her want him all the more. Amazingly, this woman was persistent. She continued to pressure him. If you resist temptation in your life, temptation doesn't necessarily get easier. Sometimes it gets harder because the longer you go, the more your endurance is tested. And she tries to wear him down, to get him to compromise just a little. Joseph, can you just lie here with me and talk for a bit? I just need someone who listens to me like you. My husband, he's always gone. He never pays any attention. He doesn't understand me. Joseph, I just need some advice from someone who's so wise like you. Joseph, will you help me with something upstairs? Joseph, but he wisely refuses. Paul tells us in Romans 13, 14, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's what Joseph does. He avoids any situation in which he knows he will be vulnerable to her pressuring and her tactics. Proverbs 5, 7 says, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Oh, that we would show such wisdom in our lives, in where we go, and who we are with, what we allow on our screens, the situations we put ourselves into. Joseph avoids any opportunity for temptation as much as is possible, as much as he can control. But unfortunately, he can't avoid every situation, and we see a final showdown in verses 11 through 13. But one day, even though he's doing his best to avoid her, it says, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. She wants the one thing she can't have, and she gets to the point where she says, I'm going to go all in. All the chips are in. She decides to force herself upon him. And when this moment comes, Joseph doesn't stop to think about it. He doesn't take the time to explain himself to her again while she wraps her arms around him. No, instead he runs. He flees. The, the Hebrew word here has the idea of someone who's trying to escape for their very life. And she's left with only cloth in her hands. This is not cowardice. This is courage on Joseph's part because his integrity will cost him. But we do see here the strength of his integrity, that the fabric of his garment actually gives way before his integrity does. But it is going to cost him. Having been denied, she quickly changes her goals. You know the, the familiar saying, hell hath no fury, like a woman scorned. Maybe that came from this story. She decides if she can't have him, then she's going to make him pay. 
He will pay for humiliating her like this. If she cannot tempt him to compromise his convictions, then she's going to assassinate his character. Look what she does in verse 13. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew. That's kind of an ethnic put down here. Brought in a Hebrew to laugh at us euphemistic language for making a fool of her. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. She tells a lie, a false accusation of assault. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. She falsely accuses Joseph of assault before all the men of the household, all of Potiphar's other employees. And then she tells the same story to her husband Potiphar. And she has evidence, his garment. And she has a story that cannot be proven false. And in an ancient form of social media, she's just hashtagged me too and told everyone else that she's a victim of Joseph. Once again here, we find that Joseph is the victim of a lie that uses his own clothing as evidence against him. Remember what his brothers did? Whose garment is this, shredded and caked in blood? Now, they had torn it up and smeared the goat's blood on it, but Jacob thought a wild animal must have torn my son and killed him. Well, Potiphar sees this evidence and can only conclude that Joseph had come in and attempted to assault his wife. But he's kind of put in between a rock and a hard place. You wonder if he really trusted Joseph this much and if he probably knew what kind of person his wife was. Did he doubt her accusation? Well, she's kind of forced his hand because she's told everybody and she's made this whole thing public and she's demanded that he act. She said, you brought in this foreigner who's made a fool of all of us. What are you going to do about it? Well, he is angry and has to respond. We see in verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. Thinly veiled accusation here. This is your fault, Potiphar. Well, his anger is kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison. Put him into the prison. But notice this. It's not just any prison. The place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But what we see in verses 19 through 23 is just like what we saw in the first six verses. That God is with Joseph in his imprisonment. Look at what it says, verse 21. But even though he's in prison, even though he's been falsely accused, even though he's a victim of injustice, even though he did the right thing and actually got punished for it. It says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Potiphar's angry, has Joseph thrown into the royal prison, but it's amazing here that Joseph is not executed. Why? I mean, shouldn't this be a capital offense? I mean, why would they not remove his head from him? 
Well, we don't know all the reasons, but we know ultimately Joseph is not executed because God wasn't done with him yet. God wasn't done with him yet. I love what Derek Kidner says, that the good seed is only being buried deeper. That's what God is doing here. He is right where he needs to be, in the center of God's will. His time in Potiphar's house, and even the injustice that he faced, the false accusation, the false conviction, actually moved him strategically closer to the goal. God's plan was to get Joseph into the house of Pharaoh. And now he's getting one step closer to that goal. Even his work in Potiphar's house prepared him for his future role in Pharaoh's administration. And the people that Joseph would meet here in prison would be the key to catapulting him to the very throne room of Pharaoh. What we see here that Joseph is in the prison where the king's prisoners were, that's a little preview. That's a trailer for the next episode in this story, what we'll find over the next several chapters. Each setback that Joseph faces is actually moving him closer to where God wants him to be. God's providence ensures the fulfillment of God's promises. Joseph is destined for greatness, not just for his own sake, but so that through his power and authority, he could rescue the people of God and preserve the covenant promise of blessing for all the nations. God is at work here, even though it seems to Joseph, perhaps, that maybe he's been forgotten. This story ends with Joseph in a new place, but experiencing a familiar pattern, the presence of God, blessing, success, and promotion, the same thing that happened when he arrived in Potiphar's house. And you have to wonder for a minute, would all this have been forfeited if he had sinned? Think about that for a moment. Imagine that he gave in to Potiphar's wife, and imagine that Potiphar found out. Well, Joseph would have ended up here in this exact same prison, but perhaps without God's blessing, and perhaps without God's presence. Although Joseph's integrity cost him, God's approval was worth far more than a moment of pleasure, and worth far more than even his freedom. So we find Joseph in the prison, but still enjoying the presence and the blessing of God. So what do we learn from this? Well, I think that first, first of all, there's a lot for us to learn about the biblical priority of purity. If you're taking notes this morning, number one for the application part of this sermon is that purity is essential. It's essential. We must fight for purity. First Thessalonians 4 says this, for this is the will of God. So get ready for what comes next because this is what God wants for you. I can tell you this morning what God's will is for your life. Paul writes, this is the will of God, your sanctification, you becoming more and more holy and like Jesus. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, now listen to this, therefore, whoever, whoever disregards this, Whoever doesn't take this call to purity seriously. Paul says, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let me ask you, do we focus too much of our energy and attention on trying to discover those aspects of God's will that we can neither know nor control? Where am I going to be in five years? 
What's going to happen in this situation in my life? What, God, what job does God want me to take? Well, God hasn't always revealed all of those things to us, has he? But God has revealed his will in this area, that we abstain from sexual immorality, that we walk in holiness. But too often, I think we are obsessively seeking the secret will of God and what's going to happen to us in the future, and we neglect the revealed moral will of God. Even worse than that, there may be some here this morning who are disregarding not my words, not man's words, but disregarding God because perhaps you're tolerating sexual sin in your life. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The reason God calls us to purity is because it honors him, first and foremost, but secondly, because it's bad for us. Paul tells the Corinthians that when we sin sexually, we sin against our own bodies. God's not trying to keep us from something good. He tells us this for our good. It wages war against our souls. So Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22 to, like Joseph perhaps, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Friends, this is a matter of life and death for us. We must fight. We must flee. We must forsake such sin and pursue righteousness. This is essential. It is essential for those who would follow Christ. But not only is purity essential, but number two, purity is possible. It is possible. We can look to the example of Joseph and see that purity is possible. Let's not tolerate the the passive language of struggling in the church. Often I hear people say, I'm struggling with this sin. I'm struggling with this. And what they mean by that is, I regularly give in to this sin and have zero victory over it in my life. But it's okay because we're all sinners. We all struggle. Yes, we are all sinners. But struggle implies effort and hopefully some victories along the way. We can fight for purity. It is possible. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and wisdom will take us away from sexual sin and towards holiness and joy in embracing God's design for the use of our bodies and the enjoyment of marriage. We need to seek the Lord and see him. We need the view of God that Joseph had. And here's the good news. If you come to have that same view of God that Joseph had, if that rules your mind and starts to shape the desires of your heart, you too can have victory in the face of temptation. We need to cultivate this fear of the Lord in our hearts. By the power of the Spirit, you can say no. There is no room for defeatist excuses in scriptures. I love Romans chapter 6. Go home and read it. I'm not going to preach a second message on Romans 6 today, but Romans 6 tells us that we are not slaves to sin, that those who are in Christ have been set free. Our old slave master can't tell us that we have to give in to these temptations because we are in Christ Jesus, baptized into his death and resurrection, and we can now have the freedom to use our bodies not for unholy purposes but as instruments of righteousness. Go read Romans 6 and see the freedom that we have. Purity is possible. And we have a beautiful example of that here in Joseph. Now, some of you might feel like you've got a ton of bricks on your shoulders right now because you might be saying, yeah, this is great. I hear what you're saying, but 
what if I've already failed? Oh, yeah, be like Joseph. That sounds good, but it's too late for me. It's too late for me. Perhaps this morning you see the wisdom and integrity of Joseph, and perhaps you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit for your own moral failure. Maybe you feel the sting of guilt, the ache of shame. Maybe it was last night. Maybe it was decades ago. What do you do? What do you do if you've fallen and failed? If you look in the mirror here and say, I sure don't look a lot like Joseph. Well, in God's wisdom, he's, he's given us not just the positive example of Joseph, not only the wise warnings of Proverbs, but he's also given us the relatable failure of a man named David. Though he was a man after God's own heart, he famously fell and committed adultery. And there's comfort in this story for us, but hear me, there's no comfort found in sharing the fellowship of his failure. Oh yeah, somebody else who was, you know, a servant of God, they failed too, so I'm okay. There's no comfort found in sharing the fellowship of his failure. The comfort is found for us in the record of David's repentance and his restoration after that failure. I love Psalm 32, one of my favorite passages in scripture, and this is written by David. Listen to what he says. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then here's this personal testimony from David. He says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, because listen, when I tried to hide my sin, it ate me alive. I was dying on the inside. But what did he do? I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and David says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Comfort is found for us, not just in the camaraderie of failure with David, Comfort is found for us when we see that through repentance comes restoration, that there's hope for those who have not followed the wise example of Joseph. If you are living in sin, today is the day to confess that sin like David did. Confess it to God and turn from your sin. Run the other way. Run to the God who forgives. Run to the Savior who sets us free from sin. Run to the Spirit who empowers us to change and to become mature in our faith. If you have failed in the past, your failure does not need to define you. Those who have laid their sins at the foot of the cross are made new and made clean. Rejoice today that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And because of that, let the gratitude and joy that comes from that truth spur you on to commit yourself to walk in newness of life, as Paul tells us. To put off the old and to put on the new so that you can face the next temptation that comes, because it will. Face the next temptation that comes with a spirit-given zeal for holiness, shaped by the fear of God and rooted in our gratitude for the work of our Savior on the cross. All of this is possible for us today. Forgiveness is possible. Victory is possible because there is one who is even more righteous than Joseph. 
Joseph passed the test here, but he wasn't a perfect man. He sinned just like you and me. But the righteous example of Joseph points us ahead to someone who was perfectly righteous, to Jesus Christ. Now, the righteous example of Joseph all by itself can crush you because you can never live up to that perfectly. But the righteous life of Christ, that which Joseph's life points us to, his righteousness doesn't crush us. His righteousness actually secures our salvation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Of God. My, my goal this morning is not to crush you with moral responsibility. My, my aim this morning is to call you to holiness and to integrity that is motivated by joy and gratitude for the forgiveness and the righteousness that is ours in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you're aware of your sin, I hope you know that the people sitting around you today, we are sinners. And we have all stumbled and fallen in many ways. But we have a Savior who is greater. His grace is greater than our sin. His blood atones for our failures. And his perfect life of righteousness has been credited to our account. God can treat us as if we've never sinned and as if we always obeyed perfectly like Jesus because of a beautiful exchange that took place on the cross 2,000 years ago where Jesus took our sins upon himself And he gave us his righteousness. That's our hope. And if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, it can be your hope as well. Good luck trying to be as righteous as Joseph all the time. You can't do it. You can't do it. Your only hope for righteousness and forgiveness and life is to trust in Jesus Christ. The same God who was with Joseph in his slavery was also with him in the moment of his temptation. So Christians, we can have hope to resist. And God was also with him in his time in prison. God is with us in adversity as well. And he's with us today. God is faithful to fulfill his promises. So in light of that, let's strive to be faithful to him. Be faithful to walk blamelessly before him in humble faith, in humble obedience, with the comfort and courage that comes from knowing that even when we do stumble, we have a Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. God, we look to the example of Joseph, and we ask that you would give us a holy fear of you that would enable us to see through the lies of temptation, the lies of the world, the lies of the devil, the lies of our own flesh. God, help us to see sin for what it is, great wickedness that is only and always primarily against you. God, give us wisdom to not dabble in sins that would destroy our souls, to not dabble in sins that bring shame to your name, that dishonor you. God, I pray that you would help us to to, to pursue purity with zeal, with effort, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But Lord, we thank you for the confidence that we know, we can know that it is you who are at work within us, both to will and to do. The desire to fight and the ability to succeed comes from you, from your spirit. So Lord, we ask for the help of your spirit. We cannot do this by ourselves. And we ask God that for those who are struggling with condemnation and with guilt and shame this morning, that they would look to Jesus and receive 
the forgiveness that can only come through him. Lord Jesus, you are our only hope. And we thank you that you offer us cleansing and forgiveness. We give you praise and ask that you would give us the strength to honor you with gratitude for all that you've done for us. Amen.